0: Genuine Christians make it a habit to pray for each other. There is no more powerful way to impact somebody's life than to pray for them. Genuine Christians are people who value God more than anything else. If you would open your Bibles to First Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, we're going to go from Old Testament to New Testament, which we typically do every three to four months. We're moving from uh, Daniel, as, we, as you know, last week, which is uh, Medio persia Babylon in the Middle East, and now we're moving a little bit further west to the eastern north end of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, Greece, And we're going to be looking at Thessalonians, which takes place, of course, in the city of Thessalonica, which is currently called Thessaloniki, modern-day metropolitan Thessaloniki. is the second-largest city in Greece, over a million population metro. It's the capital city of the region of Macedonia, which is northern uh, Greece. And it's a major political, industrial, and commercial center. Originally, the city of Thessalonica was called Therma, because there's many hot springs around this particular area. And so it was a popular place for health care and things like that. The city of Thessalonica was founded in 315 BC by King Cassander of Macedon, and it was named after his wife Thessalonike, an I-K-E, right, like Nike shoes. She was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. So Cassander was one of the four major generals of Alexander we talked about last week, who inherited his empire. When Alexander died at age 33, he married Alexander's half-sister, Thessalonica, and that was the name of the town after his uh, wife. So the king of Macedonia, the kingdom of Macedonia, fell to the Romans in 168 BC. They were taking over the bulk of that region, and Thessalonica was made the capital city of the Roman province of Macedon. And Macedonia made a really good decision to support Mark Antony and Octavian in the battle for the or the, really, the, who was going to rule the Roman Empire in 42 BC. So, Mark Antony and, and Octavian, who became Caesar Augustus, by the way, um, they meant, they said, uh, Thessalonica, you can be a free city in Rome. Now, that was a very big deal because it meant no taxes. Now, if Bakersfield was a free city in the US, we'd have a lot more population than we have now, right? Because there would be no taxes. It meant there was no soldiers garrisoned in the city, And it means they were granted self-rule, which means they had their own citizens' council and and senate and things like that with very, very limited interference from Rome. So they were really a public assembly governed by their own um, uh, uh, self-government. They were very strategically located on something called the Ignatian Way or Via Ignatia. This was a key hub. I want you to get the picture of where this takes place. The Ignatian Way was a commercial trade route, and it really ran all the way in the east from the Orient through Byzantium, which is Constantinople, current-day Istanbul, right there on the Bosphorus, the Black Sea, all the way through Greece, all the way to Rome. So this was a major trade and military route, and Thessalonica was right on that route. Uh, It was located on a sheltered harbor. If you look there, you'll see the Thermaic Gulf. It's not noted as such, but it's right there in a harbor. It's the chief seaport of Macedonia, which is upper Greece, and it ranked with Corinth and Ephesus in trade. The Axios River flowed into the sea at this location. You see the east-west via Ignatian route. It was also located on a major north-south trade route that ran from Thessalonica all the way to the Balkans north. So if you're on a major trade route, a major seaport, with fresh water, a military strategic location, you are really in a key location. And this city was so key to the Roman Empire, it was known as the mother of all Macedonia. Now, Greece was not one nation at this point, it was two nations. There were two regions, Macedonia in the north and Achaia in the south. It looks like Acacia, it's actually Achaia. That was the southern uh, region of this particular area. And Philippi and Thessalonica were the leading cities in the north, and the leading cities in the south were Athens and Corinth. Now, Paul visited this city on his second missionary journey, probably somewhere between 50 and 52 A.D. So it was somewhere in that neck of the woods. Remember... Paul had been going through Galatia, Cilicia, which is modern-day Turkey, visiting the churches and strengthening them, and he wanted to go north, and the Holy Spirit told him no. And he had a vision of a, quote, a man from Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And at the same time, Paul then traveled to the west across the sea there and landed in Philippi. Philippi is just northeast of Thessalonica. And Paul spent some time in Philippi, and remember he exorcised a demon from a slave girl that was prophesying the future and making her masters a lot of money. And you know the story, Uh, these uh, people got very upset because their cash flow went away, because she was now demon free and could no longer do fortune telling. So they threw Paul and Silas in prison in the stocks, they arrested them without a trial, which was illegal and threw him into jail. Remember the story there, God sent an earthquake, broke the jail open, the sailor jailer came to faith, and the city authorities begged Paul to leave Philippi, and so after his ministry in Philippi, he travels about 100 miles west to the Macedonian port city of Thessalonica. This all takes place in Acts 17. At the time Paul visited Thessalonica, it had a population of about 200,000 people which is a big population when everybody walks. There's no subway, no trains, no cars, no Uber. You put shoe leather to it if you want to go from point A to point B. So most of the population in this city now is Greek, but there's a large number of Romans as well. Because when you're a free city in Rome, if you're a Roman soldier, you can live there for free with a lot of benefits. So there was a fair amount of Romans living in this city as well. Now this was a port city. And if you know anything about port cities with a lot of transient populations, the climate is morally promiscuous. I mean, prostitution was epidemic in this town, divorce was common, babies were abandoned in the streets, so it was not a morally upright community by any stretch of the imagination. So Paul comes to Thessalonica, and as is his custom, he always begins preaching in the Jewish synagogues using the Old Testament scriptures to try and persuade the Jewish population of two things. One, the Old Testament taught that a suffering, dying, and resurrected Messiah was coming. Pastor Roger talked about that this morning. All through the Old Testament, there were prediction after prediction after prediction. There is a Messiah coming. He's going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to be resurrected. And number two, Paul taught from the Old Testament, Those predictions were fulfilled in the life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection of the historical Jesus Christ who lived in Israel. And so that was his stock in trade. He would always go to a new city, he would go to the Jewish synagogue, and he would begin to persuade them from the Old Testament because they had a high view of scripture and believed it, that Jesus in fact was the Messiah as prophesied in the Old Testament. Now, Thessalonica was a booming city for trade. It was on all the right key routes, trade routes, and so there was a very large Jewish population there doing business. And as a result, the synagogue in Thessalonica was extremely large. So a very short period of time later, many, many Jews came to faith in Christ as a result of Paul's preaching, and the Jewish leaders viewed Paul's message as a threat to Judaism. So they stirred up a paid mob, and charged that Paul was harboring traitors to Rome, and they was teaching people to disobey Roman law. So the civic authorities came to Paul, actually to Jason, which was Paul's host, and they said, you have to post a bond. You have to guarantee that this character will not disturb the peace of the future. Well, when you preach the gospel, you're going to disturb the peace. That's reality, that's the nature of the gospel. It goes against the culture of the day. Of course, that required that Paul, Timothy, and Silas leave town. So they were in Thessalonica, pray maybe for three, four, five months, pretty short period of time. Then they traveled 40 miles southwest to Berea. Now, that's about a two-day walk. You can walk about two and a half to three miles on fairly reasonable terrain. Most people can. Back then, today, we don't, so we can't. But the Jews followed them to Berea, stirred up another crowd, another mob, ran them out of town again. So Paul left and went south to Athens, which is down south, and he left Silas and Luke in Berea. Paul and Silas later joined uh, Paul in Athens and Paul sent Timothy back up north to Thessalonica to see how the church was doing. I mean, he'd only been there for four or five months and they were under intense persecution. It was a brand new baby church he sent Timothy back up there to see how they were doing. That's a 300-mile walk north from Athens to Thessalonica, so that took a little while. So after Athens, Paul left and went down to Corinth, which is west. He stayed in Corinth for about 18 to 22 months, about a year and a half. So when Timothy and Silas came back to Paul in Corinth, that the young church, and they told him, the young church in Thessalonica is doing really, really well. As a matter of fact, they're standing firm in the faith, And on the basis of that report, Paul writes them two letters. And he writes them the letters, number one, to express his thankfulness and his gratefulness because they were standing firm in the faith. He wrote to encourage them to continue to persevere because they were in the middle of a pretty fair fair amount of persecution. They were living in a very immoral culture. And as you and I know, living pure life in an immoral culture means you're going against the grain. Paul had been charged that he was preaching the gospel for money. So in the letter, he clarifies, obviously I'm not preaching for money, I'm preaching for the gospel. There were many in Thessalonica who, they were waiting for Christ to come back this afternoon. And as a result, they wouldn't work. They said, well, he's coming back this afternoon. Let's just lay around and potluck on one of some of our neighbors. Jesus is going to come back anyway. We don't have to go to work. So they got lazy. Paul wrote, confronted them on that. Some of the Thessalonicans, since the persecution was so intense, they thought the day of God's judgment, the tribulation has come. We're in the middle of the tribulation right now. Have you heard this before? Many people say, well, we must be in the middle of the tribulation because times are so bad. People have been thinking that for centuries and centuries. Paul says that's definitely not the case. You're not in the tribulation at this point in time. So he instructed them in that matter, and he also told them what was going to happen to Christians when they die. In other words, before the Lord returns. So a good chunk of 1 Thessalonians and a part of 2 Thessalonians is about life after death, eschatology, the time of the future. So I wanted to kind of give you just a very brief overview, very, very rapid. And now let's pick up the narrative. We're going to, Lord willing, just do the first 10 verses today of chapter 1. Let's go to chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. So there's three people that Paul is identifying. Paul Silvanus, that's also called Silas, that was his Greek name, and Timothy, they were a missionary team. Paul, whose, whose name means little, believe it or not, I understand that he was short, so I don't know how that came about. He was formerly known as Saul. Remember the conversion on the road to Damascus? Saul means asked for. And Paul had likely led Timothy to faith on his first missionary journey uh, some years before. And Timothy means God-honorer, God-honorer. Silas, his missionary partner, was a, a leader in the Jerusalem church. And he was also a mensuensis. A mensuensis means a scribe. So Silas took dictation. We understand from a number of Paul's letters that Silas was probably the one who actually took dictation from Paul and wrote the letters. Paul generally didn't write his own letters. He dictated them. Silas wrote some of them. And he says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church. Now, the church ecclesia literally means the called out ones. The called out ones. The church, that's you and I, are a group of people whom God has called out Of what? Called out of the world. Called out of the world system. Called out of darkness into light. Called out from death into life. He's called us out, separated us from this world, and set us apart for a relationship with him. The ecclesia, the church, also means assembly. Interestingly enough, the word church is a synonym for synagogue, which is a Jewish gathering of people designed to be called apart from the world and separated to worship God. So Paul uses the title, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that's his formal name, which clearly indicates that Jesus is God in the same way that the Father is God. By the way, just to define some terms for you. Anytime you see the word Lord in your scripture, that means owner and master. Lord always means Owner and master. So when it's Lord Jesus Christ, he is your owner because he paid for you at the cross, and he's your master, right? Jesus, or Yeshua, means Savior, and Christ, or Christos in Greek, is Messiah in Hebrew. Christ is Messiah. Same thing. Messiah is the Hebrew version of that, and it means anointed one, which they always use for a king. You anointed the king, right? So we have the owner, master, Savior, king. In case you're wondering whether Jesus was God, Paul makes it extremely clear. And he says grace. Grace in in, uh, Greek is charis, which means gift. And grace in Hebrew means shalom. And shalom means peace. It means favor. It means well-being. It means prosperity, especially spiritual prosperity. When someone says shalom to you, that's a lot more than just May you not have any cat fights at home with your spouse. It is a sense of well-being throughout your life, throughout your physical body, throughout your spiritual, throughout your relationships, and most importantly, your relationship with God. So he says grace and peace. God's grace is what? His unmerited favor. You are here as a Christian because of God's unmerited favor in Jesus Christ and His grace is the basis of our peace. So we have peace with God, why? Because we've been saved by His grace. So His grace is the foundation of our peace with God. It's also the foundation of our peace in a crazy world. You can have peace in a Mad Max world because God is sovereign over everything, and He loved us, saved us, and has prepared a home for us in heaven. Amen? Verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Here's the principle. Genuine Christians make it a habit to pray for each other. Genuine Christians make it a habit to pray for each other. Now, Paul has an attitude of gratitude. He says, I'm giving thanks. Gratitude is being thankful, number one, to God for who he is, and what he's done for us. And Paul was grateful to God for the Thessalonians. And he expresses that gratitude in prayer. If you want to improve your relationships with people, start thanking God for them. Even the ones that make you crazy. But you have a long list of those, right? We all do, right? Thank God for them. They're in your life for a reason. Yes, say yes. They're in your life because God arranged for them to be in your life. So thank God for his sovereign choice to allow these people in your life to grow you spiritually, right? Yes, I know. Paul says, I always pray. He's praying regularly and habitually for them, and he gives thanks to God for all of them. By the way, there's no more powerful way to impact somebody's life than to pray for them. There is no more powerful way to impact somebody's life but to pray for them. Because you and I cannot talk to many people, especially relatives, because their hearing aids are turned off because we're just relatives, right? We have no credibility at all. That's why one of the things you will notice in this class is we pray a lot for people we love who no longer listen to us, but the Holy Spirit can go where we can't go, amen? Amen. That's why we pray, and we keep praying. Most of us probably ask God for more things than we thank God. It's interesting that Paul leads with thanksgiving. He leads with gratitude. You know, I thought, if we counted our blessings first, we'd probably ask for less. Because we'd probably recognize that he's already taken care of most things, right? So why did give Paul why did Paul give thanks to the Thessalonians, verse three? He says, I thank God for all of you all the time, constantly bearing in mind your three things, work of faith, labor of love, steadfast of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Here's the principle. Genuine Christians are changed people. They are known by their working faith, serving love, and steadfast hope. Genuine Christians are changed people. They are known by their working faith, serving love and steadfast hope. So the work of faith. What's the work of faith? Well, at some point in time in the past, the Thessalonians had exercised saving faith by turning to Christ. It not only saved them from the penalty of sin, as you know what Jesus' death did for us, it also produced fruit. Faith always produces fruit. That's visible results in their lives. And verse 9 tells us, well, what were some of the visible results? Well, it says they turned from idols to serve a living and true God. So it means they said they acknowledged and accepted the one true God, and at the same time, they simultaneously rejected all false gods told idols. The Thessalonians' church proved they were saved, not only by what they said, by what they did. See, one of the questions that many of us have is, how do I know whether... I'm saved. How do I know whether somebody else is saved? Well, if you're saved, there will be results. There will be results. There will be fruit. And in this particular case, they were serving idols, and they were now serving God. And we say, well, we don't have any of these little idols we put on shelves. No, our culture is consumed with idolatry. They may not be little stone things, but materialism and stuff and prestige. And, you know, likes on Facebook or whatever it happens to be. We've all got idols, right? Our culture is loaded with them. So the Thessalonians lived dramatically different lives after Christ than before Christ. Here's why that happens. At the moment of salvation, what occurs in your life? Who comes in to take up residence? God the Holy Spirit does. And when God the Holy Spirit comes in to take charge of your life, He brings life and change. And that change is comprehensive down to your spiritual DNA. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. See, we're not saved by faith plus works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Saving faith always produces fruit because saved people are changed people. I have a forward theology. It's very simple. No change, no Jesus. God does not come in your life and leave you like you were before. He is going to change you. And by the way, many of you in this room have been walking with Jesus for decades. He is not done changing you. As a matter of fact, I used to say, Lord, can you just leave me alone? (laughs) I'm tired. I'm so tired. I mean, I just just want to be comfortable and, and be lazy. And he said, I love you too much to let you have your way. And I'm going, well, that's what I used to tell my children. He says, well, yeah. What are you? You're my child. Okay, right. Genuine faith is revealed through a changed life that wants to do what's right in God's sight. James 2.26 says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Someone who says they're a Christian will live differently than they did before if their faith is genuine. So, that's first evidence. Second evidence of genuine faith is love, labor of love. Genuine Christians serve because they love Jesus. Jesus. Love is not passive. Love is active. You want to know what love does? Love sacrifices for the one it loves. Love is a commitment to work for the benefit of what you love. I'm going to say that again. Love is a commitment to work for the benefit of what you love. God's standard of love is Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, than what? One laid down his life for his friends. He commanded us to do the same thing. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for another. It's a pretty high standard. See, we love... The only reason we can love is because he first loved us. And we're commanded to love each other in the same way that Jesus loved us. We serve Jesus because we love him. The Thessalonians served Jesus because they loved him. And we serve others because Jesus gives us the power to do that. It's very humbling to realize when you look in the mirror that without Jesus, we are all self-centered little pigs. Even with Jesus, sometimes we behave that way, right? The only reason we can love others is that the Lord gives us the motive and the desire and the capacity to love others. Love that refuses to serve is not love. It is selfishness. Love always serves. Now, the Thessalonians were serving Christ and each other even when they were being persecuted by their culture that was hostile to the gospel. So I have a faith that works, a love that serves, and a hope that endures, or a steadfast hope. That's the last part. Genuine Christians persevere despite persecutions. That's an enduring hope. And they were hoping in what? Christ's return. By the way, you and I are eagerly waiting for Christ to come back. Yes? The older we get, the more eagerly we wait. Just FYI, unsaved people that you know are not eagerly waiting for Jesus to come back. They're not going, oh, the judge is coming, I'm excited. They're definitely not excited about him coming back to earth. Matter of fact, Scripture says, when he comes, they're going to try and hide. Mountains fall on us, hills cover us, because they know he's a righteous judge, and they haven't been willing to repent from their sin. The Thessalonians had steadfast hope. They were waiting patiently for God's resurrected son to come back from heaven, even in the middle of intense persecution. By the way, if you want to eagerly desire Christ's return, I got a foolproof way for it to happen. Suffer. I'm serious. When everything's going well, we think, well, this life is not bad. I mean, I've got family, friends, fame, fortune. I'm I'm happy, right? I'm comfortable. When we are in the middle of pain, we long for Jesus to come back and solve what's breaking our hearts. The Thessalonians lived every day expecting Jesus to return that day. Do you think Jesus could return before lunch? If you really believe that, how would you live differently than you're living now? Would you make lunch reservations? Just saying, right? We should live every day expecting him to come back that day. The foundation of their hope was found in verse 4. On what basis did they hope? Well, it was based on God's election. Knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you. Now, this is a big principle. And I'm going to try and unpack this by the power of the Holy Spirit because my little brain does not have the capacity to do this on my own, obviously. Here's the principle. Salvation requires both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. By grace, God shows you for salvation. And through faith, you are responsible to believe in Jesus as your Savior. Salvation requires both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. By grace, God shows you for salvation. And through faith, you are responsible to believe in Jesus as your Savior. Paul, in this passage, uses the word brother or brethren 15 times in 1 Thessalonians and 7 times in 2 Thessalonians. So he's focusing on equality. He's focusing on belonging to the family of God. He's focusing on the fact that God is the father of his family and loves all of his children equally. He says, you are beloved of God. And we know that because John 3.16 says what? For God so loved... The world. Now, if you really want to personalize that, scratch out the world and put your name in there. He came for you. He came for you because he loves you individually. Romans 5:8. But God demonstrates his own love for your name, and that while your name were still sinners, Christ died for me. Seriously, personalize some of these, it'll make some sense. It says Beloved of God, his choice of you. So this is the doctrine of election, which I'm going to try and unpack for you now, which means that each of us individually have been chosen by God for salvation from eternity past. Our salvation involves the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Warren Wiersbe writes, as far as God the Father was concerned, I was saved... When he chose me in Christ before the world began, eternity passed. As far as God the Son is concerned, I was saved when he died for me on the cross. At a specific moment in history. As far as God the Holy Spirit is concerned, I was saved one Saturday night in May of 1945 when I trusted Jesus Christ. And that is true of every single one in this room. Every one of you that knows Jesus Christ the Savior and Lord has been elected by God the Father and chosen in Christ from eternity past before the foundations of the world, before anything was created. Everyone in this room who is saved by Jesus Christ, as far as the Son was concerned, you were saved when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins in Israel at a specific point in history. And thirdly, as far as the Holy Spirit, every single one of us was saved by the power of the Holy Spirit when at some point in history... A moment in time, he brought conviction to your heart, and you chose to follow and repent and turn your life and surrender to Jesus Christ and your Savior. Amen? So God's sovereignty and salvation is taught throughout Scripture. Ephesians 1, 4. Just as he, God the Father, chose us in him, God the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. John 15.16, you did not choose me, Jesus is talking to his disciples, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. So you say, well, okay, Brad, salvation is from the Lord, God is sovereign. That's true, absolutely true. And at the same time, God chose you to be saved, He holds each individual accountable for their decision to trust or not trust in Jesus Christ to forgive their sins. So the Bible teaches divine election, God's sovereignty, and human responsibility at the same time, simultaneously. And our brain goes, it's true, absolutely true. But our brains are finite, and God's are infinite. So God sovereignly chose each person that he decided to be saved in eternity past and in eternity present, each person is responsible to choose Jesus now. We know that. John 3.16 says what? Whoever believes in him shall not perish. Right? Free choice. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. Acts 16.31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what? You will be saved. John 5 24. Jesus is talking. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Now, the one verse that summarizes this all in one verse is John 6.37. Compound verse, but fascinating. Jesus says, one. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And two, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So God's sovereignty, the Father chose you, and you will surely come to Jesus and be saved. Before you came to Christ, however, you didn't know you'd been chosen. When you came to Christ, did you know you'd been sovereignly elected to come to Jesus for salvation from eternity past? No. No. That's the first part. God's sovereignty, eternity past, chose you. Inevitably, you were going to come to salvation. Number two, you are responsible to choose to come to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ says, if you come to me, I promise you, I will not cast you out. I will not reject you. I will accept you by faith. Here's the simple way. God does the saving by grace. Humans do the believing through faith. God does the saving by grace. Humans do the believing through faith. We know that. What does Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not out of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result that works that no one should boast. Now, this scripture says the faith you have is a gift from God. Even the faith. You don't bring anything to salvation except yourself. But you're required to exercise that faith and choose to respond to the call an invitation to believe. Let me give you an illustration. This one is stolen from Harry Ironside. He gives this illustration. I want you to picture a sinner, and they're walking down the road, and they come to the door of salvation. Door of salvation. Jesus said, I'm the door, John John 10. And above the door, above the, the door top, is a sign that says, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Revelation 22, almost the last verse in the Bible. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take water without cost. So the sinner reads that invitation, trusts in Christ, and is saved, and comes inside. And once inside, they turn around and look back at the door they just walked through. And on the inside of the door they just walked through, they see this sign. They see their name engraved in stone over the door, followed by, chosen in him before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1.4. And once inside, they get the banquet hall of heaven. They realize it's a banquet they've been invited to, and they find their table, and their name is already on a place card. They were expected, and God has planned for them from eternity past. But when they're outside the door, they did not know that, right? God is sovereign in everything, including salvation, everything. But we're accountable to respond to God's invitation to believe and be saved, right? Verse 5. That's election in about eight minutes. And I realize that people have spent their lifetime, so I do not pretend to offer this to you as any sort of a comprehensive explanation other than to say... If God said it, I believe it, whether I understand all of it or not, because we serve a God who is a God of truth. Verse 5. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the truth in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, For the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. Here's the principle. A genuine Christian makes the gospel a priority. They proclaim the gospel with their words and practice the gospel with their lives. A genuine Christian makes the gospel a priority. They proclaim the gospel with their words and practice the gospel with their lives. Now, gospel means what? Good news. The heavenly good news is that the broken relationship between God and humanity can be reconciled, can be restored. That's the good news. And that occurs through the work of Christ when he paid for our sin debt by dying on the cross in our place since he took God's righteous, just wrath for our sins, God now forgives us and accepts us into his forever family. That's the good news. You can have a relationship with a living God, even though he's holy and you're sinful through the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul said, you didn't accept this, this gospel that came to you did not come to you just in word. In other words, I didn't preach the gospel to you in human strength. I didn't give you human opinions. I didn't give you just human philosophy. I didn't try and persuade you with clever arguments or entertaining speeches. None of that will change people's lives. None of that. The gospel came to you Thessalonians in power and the Holy Spirit. He's referring to the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that because Jesus promised that when he, John 16, 3, 8, when he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That means no one is coming to faith in Christ without the Holy Spirit. You cannot talk somebody into salvation, and if you could, it would be really bad because somebody else could talk them out of it. right? If they're coming to faith, they're coming through the power of the Holy Spirit who's going to bring conviction of sin and their need for a Savior. And you say, well, how do I do that? Well you can't do it in your strength either. You're going to need the Holy Spirit power in order to bring the message, and you have it, Acts 1.8. But you, he's talking about you and I and the disciples, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. And of course, that was just prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1. So when Paul preached the gospel of Thessalonians, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak. And the Holy Spirit convicted the Thessalonians to listen. That's why when you share your faith, you need to talk to the Lord intently and intensely before you go, right? That the Lord will open their ears and open their heart and open their lives. And of course, we sometimes get pretty impatient and say, God, how come they won't hear? And the Lord says, I'm still preparing them. How long did it take you for your hearing aid to turn on? How how much scar tissue did we pick up before we listened? Yeah, I know, we say, well, my children, and my grandchildren, and my friends are smarter than I am. If the Holy Spirit doesn't bring conviction, they're not going to respond. The Holy Spirit does bring conviction, they are now at the point where they can choose. So the Spirit of God empowers the people of God, that's you, who preach the Word of God in order to bring the message of the gospel to people that can completely change their lives and change their eternity. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens other people's eyes and opens our eyes to understand God's Word. You can read God's Word, and it can mean nothing. I mean, you read it, and you go, I don't know, it means nothing. And you pray, Lord, can you show me what it is you want me to learn here? And when he shines the divine flashlight on it, it's so obvious you can't believe you didn't understand it. You go, well, that is a Woda. A Woda is a duh, right? Woda, Woda, right? That's what happens when the Holy Spirit shines a light and you go, whoa, is that not cool? And then you go, duh, it's so obvious. How come I didn't get it before? Because you didn't have the illumination of the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, right? That's why prayer is so, so important. Paul says it came the power of the Holy Spirit and it came with conviction and certainty. We know that Paul preached the word with complete conviction and certainty because he wrote in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And Paul says, look, we didn't just preach to you, we actually lived the truth of the gospel as well. He said, "What kind of men we proved to be among you, they lived lives consistent with the gospel. They not only pre- preached the gospel, they practiced it." By the way, nothing is more powerful than a consistent godly example. Nothing. You may think your words are meaningless. Your example is more profound than your words. People will watch how you live far more than what you say. And if you live consistent with the message, they just might listen to what you say because they see how you live. Nothing is more destructive than hypocrisy when you say one thing and do another. We have family, friends, associates, neighbors. They watch how you live they do watch everything. You'd be amazed. Paul says, be imitators. Be imitators. He says, Thessalonians, when you came to Christ, you imitated us. In other words, you became a mimic. You became a copycat. Children imitate their parents. Spiritual children imitate their spiritual parents because spiritual babies need a spiritual family, right? To help them mature and grow. So they not only listen to Paul's words, they began to live like he lived. And Paul took that very seriously because he understood that spiritual leaders are going to be held accountable by God for how they watch over the souls of the people that the Lord gives to them, Hebrews 13, 7. And he says, interestingly enough, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Who is your ultimate role model? Jesus Christ. People are going to fail you. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Always fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the perfect model for us. And he says, you did this in the middle of much tribulation. They were experiencing persecution, rejection. Their family members rejected them. The culture at large rejected them. They might have lost their jobs. They were being ostracized for their faith. They were living in a moral cesspool. They got a lot of heat over that, living that trying to live a pure life at that point. And in the middle of that, they had joy. Not in circumstances. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy in the fact that their sins were forgiven. Joy that they could look forward to heaven. And that's us. We live in a moral cesspool. And it's getting dirtier by the day. Right? Yes. But we our joy is not in what we're experiencing here. Ultimately, our joy is in whose we are and where we're going. And he says... You are an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So these Thessalonians were living model Christian lives. They were living a godly lifestyle, and it was so profound that it was being copied up and down the Greek peninsula. Verse 8 explains how they became such a great example, though. It says they passed the gospel message on to others. Paul says, he uses the word sounded forth, your testimony sounded forth. He's talking about reverberation. He says it rang out like a trumpet. You received the gospel message and you transmitted it, right? You amplified it. You broadcast the gospel through your lives and through your words and you were unafraid to take it to the lost. And as a result of that, their personal behavior as well as their words witnessed to others and it was powerful. Paul says it was so powerful in verse 9, they themselves, these are other people who are watching the Thessalonians, they themselves report to us What kind of reception we had with you? And how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Here's the principle. Genuine Christians are people who value God more than anything else in life. Genuine Christians are people who value God more than anything in life. What's an idol? An idol is anything you value more than God, right? He's talking about repentance. He says, you turned away from God to idols. You turned away from sin. You turned to God. False gods are, are things that claim to be God. They are things that claim to satisfy your soul. They are things that claim that if only you get them, you'll be happy. And Madison Avenue in the advertising industry is marvelous. at saying, if you buy our stuff, your soul will be filled At least until we advertise something else that you say, if you only buy this thing, your soul will be satisfied. If you drink this salt water, you really will never thirst again, right? That's the culture, right? False gods claim to be God, but they are lifeless and dead. Here's the truth. Everyone worships something or someone. It's been said that every human is free to choose who their master will be But no one has the freedom to choose no master. What did Jesus say? No one can serve two masters. He didn't say you can serve no master. Bob Dylan wrote a song decades ago, everybody's got to serve somebody. By the way, everybody does serve someone or something, even if it's just themselves. Christians are people who have chosen to what? Serve a living and true God. Now, to serve means to create value for the benefit of someone else. It means to perform work for someone else. Christians who have been saved from God's righteous wrath serve Jesus because they love Him. See, God is not only infinite, God's personal. God is a God who knows your name. God is a God who amazingly wants a relationship with us, personally. I I cannot conceive of the infinite God who spoke the galaxies into existence and who created everything with a word of his mouth, who wants a relationship with me. I don't think you understand that that is amazing. I was going to say bizarre. Because it's simply outside the realm of human comprehension. He's great, he's good, he's worthy of our worship. Don't serve anything less than God himself. And the Thessalonians are waiting for the Son from heaven. They're waiting for Jesus to come back because that's where their hope is. When he comes back, he's going to set up his millennial kingdom. He's going to make everything right. He promised in John 14, I will come again and I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. See, heaven is our home, and Jesus is coming back to bring us there. And we're going to live there forever with him. That's hope. That's reality. It says, why are we hoping for Jesus to come back? Because he's going to rescue us from the wrath to come. See, God hates sin. If he didn't hate sin, he wouldn't be righteous. If he tolerated sin like we tolerate sin, he wouldn't be holy. So God hates sin, and he's going to judge it. What's so amazing is that God's wrath against sin and his love for people met at the cross. He poured out his wrath against sin on Jesus Christ, who took our sin on himself. And because his wrath was satisfied, which means justice was done, he can now look at us who have been given the righteousness of Christ and say, I treat you like my own son. Holy, perfect, pure, you're my child because you have the righteousness of Christ, and my son died in your place. That is amazing grace. Not deserved, and that's one of the reasons that they had hope in heaven, because Jesus, for you and I, is coming back as Savior for the world. He's coming back as Judge. Big, big, big difference. So we have an enormous amount to be grateful for. Let me review. We're out of time, and then we'll do prayer and praise. Number one. You want to know how you know a genuine Christian? Genuine Christians make it a habit to pray for each other. We try and practice that here in man. Number two. Genuine Christians are changed people. They are known by their working faith, serving love, and steadfast hope. Number three. Salvation requires both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. By grace, God chose you for salvation, and through faith, you are responsible to believe in Jesus as your Savior. Number four, a genuine Christian makes the gospel a priority. They proclaim the gospel with their words and practice the gospel with their lives. And lastly, genuine Christians value God more than anything else in life. It's a lot of meat we covered today. Thank you for hanging in there with me. Lord willing, we'll get to chapter two next week. Read ahead and uh, make a list of people that Jesus wants to bring to heaven and that he wants you to tell and share your lives with. I love you all. Now that you know, do.